Well, if you would, open your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, we're going to be in the 10th stanza, verses 73 to 80. And I want to begin by reading this stanza. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 73. Read along with me, verse 73. Your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. May those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Oh, may your loving kindnesses comfort me according to your word to your servant. May your compassion come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be ashamed for they'd subvert me with a lie, but I shall meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me, even those who know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. The psalmist is in the fiery furnace of affliction. And so when he says that in faithfulness you have afflicted me, he's not referring to some past affliction. He's referring to present affliction and specifically to the oppressive nature of persecution. And you see this more clearly in the next stanza. Look at verse 82. There he says, My eyes fail with longing for your word while I say, When will you comfort me? And the second line of verse 84, When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? And the first line of verse 85, The arrogant have dug pits for me. And the second line of verse 86, They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. And finally, the first line of verse 87, they almost destroyed me on earth. The psalmist finds himself in the fire of affliction, and that he does becomes incredibly instructive for us as we behold this seasoned and mature man of God respond to adversity. And as we see his response, what we actually receive is a lesson in prayer a lesson in how to pray in the furnace of affliction. In fact, I want you to sense the prayerful nature of this stanza. Look at the second line of verse 73 again with me. He says, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. And then verse 74, may those who fear you see me and be glad. And then verse 76, may your loving kindness comfort me. And then verse 77, May your compassion come to me that I may live. Verse 78, may the arrogant be ashamed for they subvert me with a lie. Verse 79, may those who fear you turn to me. And verse 80, may my heart be blameless in your statutes. The psalmist is modeling for us how to pray. And so this is a lesson in how to pray when in the fiery furnace of affliction. And whether you find yourself in the midst of that fire or not, if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, then you know that it is inevitable that you are going to experience affliction in the Christian life. And so whether this is a much-needed lesson in how to pray for for today, or whether it's a a lesson for a much, or how to pray for a much-needed situation in the future, either way, it's a much-needed lesson. 
and will either minister to you amidst the fiery furnace or will prepare you for a future day of affliction. And I think if we're honest, we often find it difficult to pray in the midst of our trials. Because the pressure of the circumstances themselves can quench our fervor for prayer where we can't seem to get our jet off the runway. And so sometimes we actually need others to pray for us. We need to go to others and ask them to intercede on our behalf. And in that case, this isn't just a lesson in how to pray for ourselves. It's a lesson in how to pray for others. And so no matter how you dice it, Each one of us needs this lesson from the psalmist. We need to hear this lesson and heed it in how to pray amidst affliction. Now, let me give you a few brief details about Psalm 119, details that I'm sure will be very familiar to you. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter of the Bible, consisting of 176 verses. It's made up of 22 stanzas, with each stanza consisting of eight verses. And since there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, each stanza is framed around the next letter. And because we're in the 10th stanza, the first letter of every verse is the 10th letter, and that's the Hebrew letter, Yod. And this stanza can be organized in a rather helpful way, because it can be organized around the concepts that it addresses, where each verse forms a conceptual couplet with another, yielding four pairs and four concepts. And even the the structure of these couplets within the stanza itself is rather noteworthy. For example, verse 73, the first verse of this stanza, corresponds with verse 80, the last verse of the stanza, focusing on the psalmist's personal piety. Then, verse 74, the second verse of the stanza, corresponds with verse 79, the second last verse of the stanza, focusing on the believing community. Verse 75 corresponds with verse 78, focusing on the affliction itself. And then in the middle, verse 76 corresponds with verse 77, focusing on the faithfulness of God. And so rather than preach this stanza the way we normally would, verse by verse, we're going to take it in terms of its couplets, its conceptual couplets, and frame each point around them. So how should you pray when in the fiery furnace of affliction? I'm going to give you four ways. Four ways to pray when in the midst of the fiery furnace. So that you would both glorify God and edify his people. And that's really important. To not just glorify God in the midst of the difficulty, but your response in the midst of the trial itself has implications for the edification of the whole church. And the first is this, the first way to pray when in the fiery furnace of affliction is to pray for personal piety. Pray for personal piety. And this brings us to the first couplet, verses 73 and 80. And though they both address personal piety, each verse has a slightly different emphasis. The emphasis in verse 73 revolves around divine illumination. And so under the banner of praying for personal piety, pray for divine illumination. Pray for divine illumination. Look at verse 73. He prays, your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. 
And I want you to notice the logical progression of this prayer. The psalmist begins by prayerfully proclaiming truth about God. Praying, your hands made me and fashioned me. Then he makes his petition, give me understanding. And then he states his purpose that I may learn your commandments. And so his prayer moves from prayerful proclamation of the truth to petition and then to the purpose of that petition. And as he prayerfully proclaims truth about God, he confesses God as creator. Again, he prays, your hands made me and fashioned me. And so the psalmist confesses with David that God is the creator, that each and every one of us have been fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139.14. And there's a degree of nuance between these two creative verbs. The word rendered made is frequently used throughout the Psalms to depict God's work in creation. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth and all they contain. He is the one through whom all things have come into existence. But the word rendered fashioned speaks more to man's constitution, both what and who man is. And so, yes, God has brought us into being through his creative work, but he has also fashioned us in a very unique and particular way. And so one commentator writes this, Indeed, this man of God understood that to which many have borne testimony, that God knows us infinitely better than we know ourselves since he has sovereignly overseen the framing of our personalities and potentialities, unquote. God didn't just create us or make us, he fashioned us. And that he appeals to God as creator, as the ground of this prayer, carries with it at least two implications. One is that as creator, the psalmist acknowledges God's rightful claim upon his life. That the psalmist owes to God heartfelt obedience. And two, since God has created him, he must have the capacity, the power to grant him understanding. To grant him everything he needs to understand God's ways. To illuminate the truth of his commandments to him. And that's what the psalmist craves. He longs to understand the intricacies of God's commandments, not just to understand what God commands, but even the rationale for why God commands it. Which is why he prays, give me understanding. Cause me to understand. And really, as you understand the commandments of God, you you come to understand more fully God himself, that his commandments are a reflection of his nature. And so to better understand God and God's commandments and God's ways is to better know God himself. And this prayer for divine illumination is a common refrain throughout this psalm. Look at verse 18, for example, very familiar, I know. There he prays, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your law. Then look at verse 34. Very similar. He says, Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. And verse 125, I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. This is his cry. Verse 144, Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. And then verse 169, 
Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. This was the cry of the psalmist's heart. To know, to understand the the word of God, the ways of God, the commandments of God. And again, the express purpose of gaining this understanding is expressed in the second half of the second line of verse 73, where he says that I may learn your commandments. And so the psalmist is declaring to God his complete dependence upon God to learn, know, and understand the word of God. And yet, it isn't enough to merely learn and understand and know the word of God. Because not only are we totally dependent on God to understand what he demands, we are also totally dependent upon him to carry it out. And so don't just pray for divine illumination, pray also for divine enablement. And this comes out in the second verse of our couplet in verse 80. So skip down now to the last verse of the stanza, verse 80. And it says there, May my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. And there are a number of features to note about this prayer. One is that it's a prayer. So the psalmist is entreating God to make this so. He's calling on God to cause him to walk in his ways. And this too is a common refrain throughout this psalm. Look at verse 5, for example. Psalm 119, verse 5. He prays in the opening stanza, Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. And then look at verse 35. An amazing stanza. There he prays, Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. And then verse 36, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. And then verse 37, Turn my eyes away from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. In fact, even look at verse 133. Amazing. There he prays, establish my footsteps in your word and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. The psalmist recognizes his total dependence on God and so he entreats him to enable him to walk in his ways. That's one feature. Two is that this prayer is directed at the heart. It's directed at the heart. He prays, may my heart be blameless. And so his primary concern is not the outer man. His primary concern is the inner man. Now, why would that be? Because when the heart is right, so too will the outward conduct be. Obedience begins in the heart. And if the heart's not right, then either time or the pressures of affliction are going to reveal that. As David prays elsewhere, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, Psalm 51.6. God desires faithfulness or integrity at the level of the heart. And so the psalmist is keenly concerned with the state and condition of his heart. Third, or three, a third feature of this prayer is that he prays that his heart would be blameless. He prays that his heart would be blameless, a word that is frequently used for the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. And in that context, means without fail, or rather without fault, or free from blemish, even without defect. But applied to one's life, it means impeccable. 
And so the psalmist is praying that his heart would be impeccable, impeachable, irreproachable. And it's not the only time that he's used this word. He employs this word all the way back in verse 1 of this psalm, the very opening declaration of this psalm, Psalm 119, verse 1, he declares, How blessed are those whose way is blameless. And then he defines what that means. He says, who walk in the law of the Lord. And when it comes to the heart, there's a real sense in which only you and God know what's there. Only you and God truly know the state of your heart. And the psalmist is so committed to God and his glory that he wants to be above reproach at the level of his heart. He wants to be blameless even in the place that only God can see. He wants there to be a strong correlation between his private life and his public life. Four is that he wants his heart to be blameless in God's statutes whereby his heart would be a sanctuary for the word of God. He wants the word of God to reign supreme from the the, the high throne of his heart. And so he wants to be blameless with respect to his thought life so that even in his thought life he obeys the word of God. And five, he wants God to make all of this a reality in his life so that he will not be ashamed it is appropriate to feel ashamed when we come to the word of God and it exposes our sin. A sense of shame is a proper response to disobedience. In fact, look back at verse five again. Only this time we'll, we'll read it through to verse six. He prays there, Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. The psalmist does not want to come to the word of God and feel shame because his life is not reflected in what he sees in the pages of Scripture. When our hearts are out of step with the word of God, we will look upon the commandments of God and experience shame. And the psalmist prays that God would enable him to walk in wholehearted obedience. Now, when you put those two realities together, remember we're praying for personal piety, and when you put the prayer for divine illumination alongside the prayer for divine enablement, there's a really important principle that comes to the surface. And it becomes a mirror for your heart. So this principle has the potential to reveal areas of your heart that are not yet yielded up to God. You see, implicit in the psalmist's prayer, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments is a predetermined willingness to obey. The psalmist is already yielded to the will of God. He is already in a place where his heart is preset to to. Be willing to obey whatever it is that God requires of him. The only thing the psalmist lacks is what? Understanding. Willingness precedes understanding is the idea. He's already willing to obey what he doesn't understand. 
And so here's the principle. A prerequisite to receiving the necessary understanding to carry out God's commandments is a heart that's already committed to do his will. I mean, that's counterintuitive because you would think that we need to first understand before we can establish willingness. For how can we be willing to obey what we don't understand? But if God is good, and he is, and if his ways are right and they are, then regardless of whether or not you understand, your heart should already be completely sold out to do his will. That you would be willing to do whatever it is that God would call you to do. That all you need from him is divine illumination, understanding. And this principle of willingness preceding understanding is reflected similarly in something Jesus says in John. Listen to this, John 7 16 and 17, he declares, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. And then he says this, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Now, certainly a slightly different context because Jesus is speaking to unbelievers at that point. But nevertheless, a prerequisite to knowing whether or not the teaching of Jesus is of God is a willingness to do God's will. Those who are willing to do God's will will know that the teaching of Jesus is of God. And so how does this principle expose your heart? By exposing those areas in your life that you're withholding from God. Areas where even if God granted you the understanding to do his will, you aren't actually yet willing to obey. And you say, well, why would anyone who's in Christ be unwilling to obey what God would reveal is necessary in his word? Because obedience can come at quite a cost sometimes. You might have to give something up. You might have to give up something that charms you. You may have the idea that being sold out to the will of God is going to mean forfeiting some earthly charm. In fact, you may even have life aims and ambitions that you feel incredibly passionate about and would rather remain blissfully ignorant about so that you can go on believing that those aims and ambitions are God-glorifying when in reality, they aren't. So the question is this, are you completely sold out to the will of God or are you withholding something from him? And if so, what? And it's in a moment like this that the spirit of God may be bringing things to mind. Matters that you are aware of, that you wrestle with and how they fit within the will of God as revealed in his word, whether these things, they may not be simple in themselves, but you're not quite sure that this is something that you can do to the glory of God. If the psalmist were here, I'm convinced he would tell you that if there are things that you are clinging to and not yielding up to the will of God, holding on to and afraid to lay down upon his altar, that you are doing so to your own harm. A harm that not only harms you, but harms the the whole body of Christ. And so today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Prayerfully repent of withholding any area of your life from him and resolve to have a heart that is completely sold out to the will of God. 
before you go to bed tonight, be able to go to bed knowing that you are willing to do whatever it is that God calls you to do, that he is good and he is worthy and he is faithful. And so whatever it is, God, give me understanding. I am willing to do whatever it is that you want me to do. And then commit yourself to praying both for divine illumination and divine enablement. That's the first way to pray. In the furnace of affliction, pray for personal piety. Now, second, pray for the covenant community. Pray for the covenant community. And this may broaden the way you look at your trials. And as you pray for the covenant community, pray for their edification. Pray for their edification. Go back up to verse 74 now, the second verse. Verse 74, it says, May those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. Now, some translations render this verse less as a prayer and more as an assertion. For example, the ESV says, Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. And so it's more of a a declaration, but either way, it's the same reality. The psalmist is expressing a certain confidence that he will be vindicated. And he desires that his vindication would be a means of edification for the entire believing community. You say, well, how could his vindication be to their edification? Because his vindication is a vindication of the faithfulness of God and the, the, the truthfulness of his word. And since his affliction is well known among the believing community, so too will his vindication be. As they observe this mature and seasoned man of God faithfully persevere amidst the fiery furnace and experience the blessing of God's deliverance. And so when the psalmist prays here, may those who fear you, referring to this group of individuals, he is referring to the covenant community. And they will see him and be glad, not only because he has remained steadfast in waiting for the fulfillment of God's word, but also because its fulfillment will result in his being rescued. God is in the the habit the practice of exalting the humble and humiliating the arrogant. Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So that means this, that personal individual trials are actually corporate affairs, community affairs, that seasons in the fiery furnace of affliction are wonderful opportunities to encourage and edify the body around you because they're going to see you and witness you go through that time of difficulty. And that puts our trials in an entirely new light, providing a completely new motivation to count it all joy. The body of Christ around you is watching you go through this difficulty, and you want to be faithful and steadfast as you go through that, so that when God would vindicate you, they would see that vindication and be encouraged and strengthened as well in the faithfulness of God. They can look at your life and say, when I'm in that furnace, I can be obedient and walk in his footsteps, and I'm going to see God vindicate me as well. And so your trials have a phenomenal opportunity to impact the body of Christ and to build it up and strengthen it to stand firm in the difficult day. And so when you're in the fire of affliction, pray that your perseverance and vindication would be to the edification of the body. 
But don't stop there. Because in some cases, you may have to actually pray for reconciliation. And that brings the second verse in this couplet into view. So skip down now to verse 79 and pray for their reconciliation. Pray for their reconciliation. Verse 79, may those who fear you turn to me, even those who know your testimonies. So you can see the the covenant community is still in view here. The psalmist is still praying for those who fear God, fellow believers. And here he prays that they would turn to him. A word that can be rendered return to him. And that he's praying that they would turn to him implies they had turned away from him. You say, well, why would they do that? Well, we get a clue in the first line of verse 78, which says, May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie. The arrogant, the the persecutors, the opponents of the psalmist were trying to subvert him with a lie. And it's more than likely that some of the covenant community had come under the influence of the lies of the arrogant and had turned away from him. And so the psalmist is praying for their reconciliation, that through his vindication, those who fear God would realize the error of their way and would return to him. And there's a a textual variant in the second line of verse 79. The NASB, which I'm using, says, even those who know your testimonies. Taken this way, the psalmist simply reiterates in the second line the, the, the particular group he's praying for. He's praying for believers. But the ESV and others say that they may know your testimonies. So the idea there is purpose. Taken that way, reconciliation with the psalmist will result in them coming to a fuller knowledge of the truth. But either way, it's more than likely the psalmist was a teacher of God's word. And since some needed to turn to him, it's almost certain that the work of the word was being hindered in their lives. Because they had come under the the lies of the arrogant, they were no longer able to see the psalmist the way that that he is and were, were then resisting his ministry and teaching to some extent. And so their reconciliation wasn't just necessary for the restoration of the relationship itself. It was necessary for their sanctification. And this is a common way the enemy will work. The enemy loves to discredit the men that bring the word of God to God's people. And the enemy will launch a a character assassination upon those who are faithful to the word to try and see if he can't influence the hearts that are under their ministry, to see if he can't harden their heart to the ministry of the word, to make the word of God less effective in their lives. And you, you see this in the Apostle Paul's life. He would go into a city, he would, he would preach the gospel, there would be those who were saved, a church would be planted, he would leave, and then Judaizers would go in and, and, and undermine his ministry, undermine his gospel, try and shut that church off from the influence of Paul. And all the, 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 the Galatians, for example, would then seek them, the false teachers. And so you have to be so aware of this scheme and not ignorant of it that Satan will work to try and undermine the ministry of the word by bringing discredit through lies to those who bring it. And so it's critical to pray for the covenant community while in the furnace of affliction, to recognize that your trial doesn't just have implications for you, but for the whole body, 
And to not just pray for their edification, but in some cases for their reconciliation, recognizing that that has implications even for their sanctification. Now, third, pray with biblical balance. Pray with biblical balance. And as you do so, prayerfully confess the ultimate source of the affliction. Prayerfully confess the ultimate source of the affliction. Look at verse 75. He says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. And so with this confession, the psalmist acknowledges the ultimate source of his affliction. And the ultimate source is who? It's God. He confesses, O Lord, I know that your judgments are righteous. And that word there for judgments can be rendered decisions. And in this case, God has decided to train the psalmist in the school of affliction. He has seen it fit to afflict the psalmist. And the psalmist sees this as an expression of God's faithfulness. Declaring that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. And that even the actual affliction itself is righteousness. And you think, well, how could he possibly see his affliction that way? Well, it's because in the school of affliction that the psalmist has learned obedience. Look at verse 67. There he prays, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. In verse 71, he says, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. The psalmist recognizes that the school of affliction is essential to his spiritual growth and development. He recognizes that faithful affliction that comes to him from God is an effective teacher. And why would that be? Well, it weans us from the things of this world, it humbles us and keeps us humble. It increases our awareness of our dependence upon God. It reveals to us the character of God. Because even as God afflicts us, he's going to be there to shepherd us and care for us in the midst of it. It forces us to apply God's word to complex situations, difficult situations where we need immense wisdom from God. And it teaches us to value our sanctification more than our comforts to be willing to say to God without any concern or any reserve, Father God, do whatever you need to do in my life to make me more like Christ. And we experience its positive effect on our lives and also because we follow in the footsteps of Christ who learned obedience from what? From that which he suffered, Hebrews 5.8. And so as you seek to pray with biblical balance, prayerfully confess that God is the ultimate source of your affliction, even recognizing his faithfulness in it. But just know this, that praying that way doesn't preclude praying against the secondary source of the affliction. And so the psalmist recognizes that ultimately it's God who is the source, but there's a secondary source whom God is ultimately using to afflict the psalmist, and the psalmist doesn't shy away from praying against those who are afflicting him. And this brings us to the second verse in our couplet. Verse 78, 
And so prayerfully oppose the secondary source of the affliction. Prayerfully oppose the secondary source of the affliction. Again, verse 78, may the arrogant be ashamed for they subvert me with a lie. The psalmist is praying for the humiliation of his opponents. He describes them as the arrogant. And he defines the arrogant in verse 21 as the curse to wander from God's commandments. And so there's a sense in which this is an imprecatory prayer. The psalmist is calling for God's judgment upon these individuals. He wants God to humiliate them. And you may be thinking, but this seems out of step with how to pray in light of the New Testament. And yet praying this way is arguably the best way to pray for the arrogant. When you pray that God would humiliate the arrogant, their humiliation is for their good. If God would humiliate them and they would see their folly for what it is, they might just turn from their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so by praying that God would humiliate the arrogant, the opponent, the persecutor. You're praying for that which could end up bringing them to Christ. And so praying for their humiliation is to pray for their good, that they might come to their senses and be reconciled to God. And just put yourself in the psalmist's shoes. He's got people lying about him, trying to subvert him, what would the temptation be if you were him? What would you want to do if you were being lied about? The temptation would be to respond in kind, to retaliate. And yet the psalmist refuses to resort to their devices and instead declares his steadfast commitment to meditate on God's word. Second line of verse 78, he says, but I shall meditate on your precepts. And so while he is being maligned, and assaulted in terms of his character, he is declaring to God, I shall meditate on your precepts. He even declares, second line of verse 77, for your law is my delight. And so the psalmist recognizes that vengeance is whose? It's the Lord's. And he refuses to take matters into his own hands and instead desires to maintain a blameless heart before God. And so know this, When you're in the midst of a trial, there's no incongruity in prayerfully acknowledging that God is the ultimate source of that affliction while simultaneously prayerfully opposing its secondary source. And so pray with biblical balance. Now fourth, pray for divine deliverance. Pray for divine deliverance. And deliverance can have two distinct expressions. You can be delivered from within the trial, and you can be delivered from the trial itself. And it's entirely appropriate to pray for both. And you'll see that in this final couplet. So pray for deliverance from within. Pray for deliverance from within. Verse 76, the psalmist prays, Oh, may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant. God's loving kindness refers to his covenant love. This is his loyal love. And the psalmist prays that the reality of God's loyal love and all its manifold expressions would flood his mind and his heart and yield an experiential comfort in his inner man. 
that he might be comforted by a profound and experiential confidence in the unfailing love of God. That's what it means to be delivered from within the trial when, like in Philippians 4, you have perfect peace, a peace that surpasses comprehension because God has filled your heart with his loving kindness. This is where the language of the Apostle Paul is so fitting, being anchored in the steadfast love of God, where the Apostle Paul can say that he is convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 38 and 39. And when you're in that place, you can totally resonate with the Apostle Paul when he says that momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of what? Glory. Far beyond all comparison, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. And so there will be times when God won't immediately deliver you from the trial, but instead will deliver you from within the trial, and you should most certainly pray for that. But is it wrong to pray that God would deliver you from the trial? And the answer is no. It's entirely appropriate to do so, to pray for deliverance from without. To pray for deliverance from without. Look at verse 77. He says, May your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Some translations render... Compassion is mercy, some as tender mercies. And the psalmist desires that God's tender mercies would come to him that he may live. And it's in this request to live that he beseeches God for divine deliverance from the trial itself. And that's because this, some trials are so challenging, so crushing, so oppressive in nature that they make it nearly impossible to live, to truly live. They are suffocating and so intense that they seem to dominate your every waking moment. And in those times, and in difficulties like that, sometimes deliverance from within isn't enough. There are times when you will need God to deliver you from the trial itself. And the psalmist entreats God for this deliverance that in his tender mercies he would intervene and rescue him from the fiery furnace that he may truly live again. Here's the reality, though. We don't have any guarantees for temporal deliverance, do we? There are no guarantees on temporal deliverance. You may be in the midst of a trial that may actually usher you into eternal deliverance, eternal rest. And so though there's no guarantee on temporal deliverance, there is definitely a guarantee on deliverance, but it's an eternal deliverance where you would lay aside this body and enter the presence of our Lord and Savior, where you would be in the presence of his very radiance and glory, entirely free from the remaining principle of sin, and able to worship him and love him and serve him the way you wish you could now. Save to sin no more. What a day that will be. 
when all of the strife of this life has ceased and you are in the very presence of your Savior and King. But it's worth pointing out that if you don't know Christ, then you don't have the the certain hope of that eternal deliverance. So you neither have a guarantee on temporal deliverance and you actually have the certain guarantee of eternal damnation, eternal judgment, that if you die in your sins, you are going to enter into the just judgment of God. And so if you are here this day and have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, then I would urge you this day to look to the Savior. God the Father sent his Son into the world to take upon himself human flesh and live a life under the law of God and fulfill that law in every respect, being tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. And in his obedience to God, he went to the cross willingly and triumphantly. And on that cross, as while he was nailed to it, God the Father poured out his righteous wrath and indignation upon his son for the sin of all who would ever believe on his name. And Christ willingly received that, drank the, the bitter cup of God's wrath in full, died, giving up his own breath, went into the grave and rose on the third day and is now seated at the right hand of God, ascending into heaven. And so I would urge you this day to recognize the holiness of God, to search your heart and conscience. You know you've sinned and fallen short of God's standard of righteousness and that you would understand in this moment that if you should leave this life without bowing the knee to Christ, then you will enter into a just judgment for all of your sins. But right now you have a moment to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to lay a hold of the Savior to be clothed in his righteousness, to receive the forgiveness of your sins, the hope of everlasting life, and the guarantee that no matter what befalls you in this life, there is eternal deliverance and rest on the horizon. Amen? And so believe on him this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This is how to pray. In the furnace of affliction, pray for personal piety ensuring you're sold out to the will of God. Pray for the covenant community, recognizing that personal trials are corporate affairs. Pray with biblical balance, distinguishing between the ultimate source and the secondary source of your affliction, and pray for divine deliverance, both from within and from without. And as you pray that way, you will fuel your perseverance It will be a catalyst for your spiritual faithfulness in the midst of that difficulty. It will cultivate a biblically balanced perspective and it will both glorify God and bring wonderful and glorious edification to his people. And you will be trained in the school of affliction being ever more conformed into the image of Christ, which is the very goal of our salvation, is it not? Indeed it is. And so heed the instruction of the psalmist, and learn how to pray in the furnace of affliction. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for this portion of Scripture and all of your word, but certainly Psalm 119, to be able to be brought in 
on the sufferings of the psalmist and to see his testimony, to see the way that he prayed in the midst of that adversity. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us, whether we're in the midst of the furnace now or will be in some time in the future, make us faithful, we pray, that you would be glorified and that your church would be edified. Do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.